I want to call your attention to Luke chapter 16. And I want us to look at verses 19 through 31. This parable is commonly called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The point that we want to lift up in the parable has to do with Christ's compassion for the poor. And uh, by default, if Christ shows compassion toward the poor, it is expected that his church, that his disciples, would show compassion for the poor. Uh, the, the true message of the, the, the parable deals with the issue of who is justified before God. How does one become justified before God? And Jesus is trying to dispel a myth that one indicator of your justification before God is that you're rich. If you're rich, according to the traditions of the time and according to some people's thinking today, your wealth is an indicator of your standing before God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I know I, I said that we're, we're looking at uh, uh, Luke chapter 16. For just a moment, I invite you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's just start with verse 1. If you, and I'm reading from the message version. If you listen obediently to the voice of God, your God, and heartily obey all his commands that I command you today, God, your God, will place you on high, high above all the nations of the world. All these blessings will come down on you and spread out beyond you because you have responded to the voice of God your God, God's blessing inside the city, God's blessing in the country, God's blessing on your children, the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, God's blessing on your basket and bread bowl, God's blessing in your coming in, God's blessing in your going out. God will defeat your enemies who attack you. They'll come at you on one road and run away on seven roads. God will order a blessing on your barns and workplace. He'll bless you in the land that God, your God, is giving you. God will form you as a people holy to him just as he promised you. If you keep the commandments of God, your God, 
and live the way he has shown you. Skip down to verse 15. Here's what will happen if you don't obediently listen to the voice of God your God and diligently keep all the commandments and guidelines that I'm commanding you today. All these curses will come down hard on you. God's curse in the city, God's curse in the country, God's curse on your basket and bread bowl, God's curse on your children, the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. God's curse in your coming in. God's curse in your going out. God will send the curse, the confusion, the contrariness down on everything you try to do until you've been destroyed and there's nothing left of you, all because your evil pursuits that led you to abandon me. Now, when you read that, it's not hard for you to come to the conclusion that if you are wealthy, your wealth is an indicator of your right standing before God. And if you are impoverished, and in the case of the parable that Jesus tells Lazarus is more than impoverished, Lazarus is, is uh, a pitiful excuse for a human being. Uh, uh, that makes it sound like he did something bad. Lazarus's life is pitiful. Nobody in here wants to be what Lazarus is. Lazarus is begging outside. Uh, he's got sores on his body. Dogs come and lick the sores. He has to wait to eat crumbs off of the rich man's table. Clearly, all of this is an indication that uh, uh, Lazarus was a terrible person and he was suffering the right justice of God. And Jesus says that's not the appropriate reading for this. Now, we're not here to discuss Deuteronomy chapter 28, but based on that, some, I, I got to say something about it, else you're going to say, well, if it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, then what does it mean? It means simply this. Moses uses, at the behest of God, through, through, through the, uh, uh, the, the desire of God, uh, Moses uses these things as an example of what blessings from God look like. And, 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 and what he's saying is, if you seek to live obediently according to the commands of God, according to the law, the, the, the standard that God has set down, because all of Deuteronomy is about a divine standard. Uh, uh, Moses is rehearsing the covenant to his people before he separates from them. They're going across to the promised land. He's going back in a different direction and ends up dying on a mountain called Nebo. But uh, uh, what he's saying is those who seek to live by God's standard will be blessed by God because they choose to live that way. Those who choose not to live by God's standard must suffer the consequences of the choice that they have made. But it is a superficial surface reading to think that it has to do with material wealth. What it has to do is the posture of one's heart and the quality of one's life. Does anybody in here, besides me, 
know folk who got money who are nonetheless miserable. Am I the only one who knows people like that? Is there anyone in here besides me who knows folk who ain't got no money, but they seem to be satisfied and content? Because the standard is not material wealth or material poverty. The standard is living according to the word of God. If you go to Sunday school Sunday, one of the things that I hope the teachers say to you, because your lesson comes from Deuteronomy, not this passage, but it comes from Deuteronomy. One of the things that I hope that they lift up to you is that the standard that God has for his people uh, in the Old Testament covenant is the law. It's called, uh, in the message version calls it, the ten words. You and I know it as the ten commandments. Jesus has a standard also. And Jesus reduces the, 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 the ten down to two. His standard is simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In John chapter 13, he actually reduces it down from two to one. I, I like simple stuff. Uh, he, he reduces it down from two to one. In John chapter 13, I believe it's verses 34 and 35, he says, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. That, that, that shrinks the whole thing down to one simple command. So then, the quality of our lives is not based upon what we have or don't have. The quality of our lives is based upon how well we commit ourselves to living to the standard that God has set. And while the standard for Moses and his people in Deuteronomy uh, was the Ten Commandments, the standard for us is agape love. Love without limit and without restriction. Love where God is first and our fellow man is second, and we are willing to place ourselves last. This parable is not the only place where Jesus deals with this idea of wealth and righteousness. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, and says, I've kept all the commandments that you've had ever since I was a child. Now tell me what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, sell everything you got. Give the money to the poor. And then come and follow me. Boy, was never heard from again. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, and they are astonished at what he says next, where he says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Their eyes got big, their mouths hung open, because just like here, they believed that wealth was an indicator of righteousness. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the, 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 the mundane things of life. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. If you want to focus on something, focus on seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And then he says all other things will be given to you 
as well. I like to say that the Bible is remarkably redundant. You don't get the message just one place. You get the message over and over and over again. In this parable, Jesus makes it clear what the true basis of justification is before God. I have to remind you, these are parables. Uh, a fancy way of saying these are stories. The, these are not real people. This is not, a, this is not Jesus describing a real-life event. This is Jesus telling a story. And when you tell a story, you fix the story so that it conveys the message that you want it to convey. Why do I say that? Because there are things in this story that some folk think are real that aren't. Like what? Like the idea of the rich man being in hell and in torment and able to look up into heaven and see Lazarus lying in Abraham's bosom. Jesus tells that, puts that in the story for effect, not because, and of course nobody in here is going to go to hell, but, but j just to make it clear to you, if you do end up in hell, <laughs> you ain't going to be able to look up into heaven. But since I know all of us are going to be in heaven, you ain't going to be looking down in hell either. They are two completely different places. The, 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 the fact that he has Lazarus lying in Abraham's bosom, not in the bosom of Jesus, not in the bosom even of God, but in Abraham's bosom. That is done for effect. And what's the effect? Abraham is considered to be the father of, uh, 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 of the faithful, the father of all of Israel. So why would he not put Lazarus, this poor, despised, sick, despicable, smelly, terrible person, why would he not put him in Abraham's bosom? It makes the effect that much greater. If Lazarus can be in Abraham's bosom, then certainly I can. And if the rich man can't be there, what does that say about me? I, I, I'm trying to make the point, don't read the story literally. It is not meant to be taken literally. It is not meant for you to walk out of here and say, well, the Bible say that folk in hell can see folk in heaven. No, Jesus tells the story that way to make a point. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? And this is how error happens. People go out thinking, they, they don't mean no harm, but they read it a certain way, and they come away with a certain understanding. But you have the wrong understanding if you think that folk in hell can see folk in heaven or vice versa. We good with that? Let's read the story. There once was a rich man, expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, had been dumped on his doorstep. All he lived for was to get a meal from scraps off the rich man's table. His best friends were the dogs who came and licked his sores. Then he died, this poor man was taken up by the angels to the lap of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in hell and in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham in the distance and Lazarus in his lap. He called 
out, Father Abraham, mercy, have mercy. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you got the good things and Lazarus, the bad things. It's not like that here. Here, he's consoled and you're tormented. Besides, in all these matters, there is a large chasm set between us so that no one can go from us to you, even if he wanted to, nor can anyone cross over from you to us. The rich man said, then let me ask you, Father, send him to the house of my father where I have five brothers so he can tell them the score and warn them so they won't end up here in this place of torment. Abraham answered, they have Moses and the prophets to tell them the score. Let them listen to them. I know, Father Abraham, he said, but they're not listening. If someone came back to them from the dead, they would change their ways. Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. Let's talk about this story. As we said, it deals with the true basis of our justification before God. And Jesus is, is, is speaking to clarify for his disciples, but he's actually speaking beyond his disciples to the Pharisees. Pharisees, again, were a sect of Judaism that uh, had control of most of the synagogues in Palestine, uh, whereas the Sadducees, a different sect of Judaism, uh, seemed to centralize their control in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees had control of the synagogues. And the Pharisees were fundamentalists in their interpretation of scripture. In fact, they were beyond fundamental. They were, uh, they, they were Jerry Falwell's moral majority. I know Jerry Falwell is dead. I don't know who's running it now. But, but that's who they were. They were that literal in their interpretation of scripture. But they were also something else with regard to scripture. They were corrupt with regard to scripture. And what do you, what do you mean by corruption? They highlighted the parts that they liked, the parts that were to their advantage, the part that gave them an edge, the part that legitimized their power and their authority. But they diminished the parts that they didn't like. They diminished the parts that uh, seemed to take away from the power and the authority that they had. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had an arrangement with the Roman Empire. This is, you, you hear me say from time to time that we always have to be careful about culture uh, and, and its relationship to the church. The Pharisees and the Sadducees both had an arrangement with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire didn't care two hoots about Jewish religion, didn't care at all. What they did care about was keeping the peace within this territory. They had conquered Israel. They were an occupying force within Israel. They had soldiers there in Israel. But they had discovered that the best way to keep the peace was to utilize folk from within the nation that they had conquered in order to do 
their bidding. You, you, you remember the story about Zacchaeus climbing up in a tree? And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. How did Zacchaeus get to be the chief tax collector? He got to be the chief tax collector because the Roman government said, Zacchaeus, you're going to be our chief tax collector. And as long as you kick up a sufficient amount of money to us, what you pocket, amen, what you pocket is all right. We, we, we'll, we'll, we'll pretend that you didn't pocket anything, as long as you make sure that, that, that enough money comes up to us. And so Zacchaeus and others like him, I, I didn't have to go to Zacchaeus, I could have gone to Matthew, also called Levi, who became one of uh, Jesus' 12 disciples. Matthew was a tax collector. You know, m most of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, but Matthew was a tax collector. As a tax collector, it was accepted, it was expected, it was understood that they were cheating. They would kick up the money that they had to to Rome, but they were pocketing money for themselves. Consequently, tax collectors were frowned upon by their fellow Jewish countrymen. But they were able to do what they did, and they were able to stay in the positions that they were in because the Roman government backed them up as long as they kept the money coming forward. The same thing could be said with Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, which made up the Sanhedrin Council. Their job, as far as Rome was concerned, had nothing to do with religion. Their job was to keep the peace among the people. Their job was to put down any hint of rebellion, which is one of the reasons why Jesus got crucified, uh, because they saw him as a rebel, and they thought that if they did not put him down, that Rome would come down on them. That's not a religious thing. I, I know we're taught that, 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 that they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't care that Jesus was not the Messiah. What they cared about was too many folk were listening to Jesus. And they were afraid of what Jesus was going to get them to do. That wasn't a religious thing. That was a cultural thing. In the same way... Part of the problem of the church today is that the church is constantly at war with culture. And, and I'll go a step further. If the church is not at war with its culture, then the church is doing something wrong. You have to be at war with culture because culture is antithetical to the cause of Christ. And so if, if the church never speaks out against culture, if the church never speaks out against the powers that be, then we are giving assent to their wrong. And if we're giving assent to their wrong, then we're failing to do what Christ has called us to do. It is our task to show people that culture, too much culture, let me put it that way, is a bad thing. My father used to tell me what his father used to say about uh, uh, politics in the church. He used to say the politics in the church are like a ship in the water. 
he said, it's fine as long as there's a ship in the water. There's a problem if there's too much water in the ship. Well, let me paraphrase that and move politics out the way and put culture in there because the same thing can be said of culture. There's nothing wrong with a little culture. We worship God, not out of a pure theological perspective. In fact, none of y'all care about a pure theological perspective. We worship God out of our culture, out of our experience, out of our heritage. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our heritage and our experience and our culture add flavor to our worship. But there's a problem when the heritage and the experience and the culture take over the church so that the church is no longer what Christ called it to be. This is what the Pharisees had done. The Pharisees had corrupted the word of God by highlighting the parts that they liked, diminishing the parts that they didn't like, and playing out changing certain things by adding what the scripture calls traditions, which were meant to enhance the understanding of the law, but in fact turn the law around. The Pharisees believed that Sabbath observance was extremely important. Strict adherence to Sabbath observance was extremely important to one's relationship with God. Jesus countered that by saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus went out of his way more than once to do things on the Sabbath that he knew would irritate the Pharisees. Mark chapter 3 tells of, uh, of Jesus coming across a man who, who is suffering from leprosy. He has a, what was described in the King James Version as a withered hand. And, and, and Jesus, of course, has the power to heal the man of his leprosy. But the sticking point was that it happened to be the Sabbath. And, and so Jesus calls the man to him, stands him up in the middle of a room, and then says with a loud voice, you tell me. Which is better, to save a life or to lose it because it's the Sabbath day? I have the power, I'm paraphrasing, I have the power to heal this man. But if I do it on the Sabbath, somebody's going to say I'm breaking the Sabbath because healing was considered to be work. So you tell me what I should do. And the scripture says nobody said a word. And then Jesus said, okay, you ain't got nothing to say, I got something to say. He turned around to the man and said, lift up your hand. And between here and there, the hand became clean. And he did it on the Sabbath. Disciples are picking grain as they're passing through a field. And, and the Pharisees say, tell them to stop picking grain. It's the Sabbath. And that's when Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And clearly you don't understand the scripture because Jesus went, not, not Jesus, David went into the sacred uh, grain fields and, and the sacred bins, and he took grain because his people were hungry, and it happened to be on a Sabbath. Jesus was regularly at war with the Pharisees because he saw them as a corrupting influence to the true worship of God. Question, are we willing to speak out against corrupting influences to the true worship 
of God. I said this to the Sunday school teachers last night in response to a question that was asked. Uh, one of the things that we have to remember and recognize and lift up is that while we all may call the name Jesus, our view of Jesus is very different from other folks' view. I don't understand, I don't know, I don't recognize the Jesus that some folk talk about. Anybody been paying attention to, to Eddie Risponi? Running for governor of the state of Louisiana? A buffoon if there ever was one. Of course, it matches with the buffoon that we have in the White House. But, but, but Risponi, who claims to be a Christian, made the statement, I believe in locking up the criminals and leaving the forgiveness to God. Question, what Bible did he read to come to that conclusion? Didn't read this one. Because in, in Luke chapter 11, and that's just one place where I can, go, I, can go, I can go to a bunch of others. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says in giving the model prayer, forgive us as we have already forgiven others. Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? Surely seven ought to be enough. And, and Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. You shouldn't have a limit to your forgiveness. Jesus recognized that these people were corrupting the law and they were exchanging the divine standard of righteousness for a human standard. And the human standard that they put in place was material wealth. And so Jesus tells a story designed to dispel the myth. This rich man whom some traditions have given a name, Dives. And Dives is not really a name, it's more a title. It means rich man. So, 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 so for our purposes tonight, I'm going to call him Dives. Dives and Lazarus. Dives was very comfortable. He was surrounded by all of the tangibles that symbolized success. He was magnificently dressed. He ate well. He lived happily. And from the perspective of the Pharisees, he was a righteous man because he had so much. In contrast, Lazarus has nothing with regard to material possessions. Lazarus, by the way, means blessed one. So now, you got Dives, rich man, and Lazarus, blessed one. Let me ask you, which one do you want to be called? Now go ahead, be careful how you answer. Because some of y'all want to be called Di-Lazarus. You, 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 you want to be both rich 
and blessed. But, but, but Jesus draws a contrast. He gives, the, he gives the man a name. As I said, tradition calls the rich man Lazarus. The text doesn't give him a name, and that's significant. Because Jesus gives Lazarus a name to indicate that Lazarus is the main person in the story. Lazarus has a name. Abraham has a name. The rich man ain't got no name. He's just called the rich man. Jesus is making a point. It is far more important that you be blessed than you possess material things. When they died, the scripture says, immediately the rich man went to hell. But Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus being in Abraham's bosom, we've already mentioned, uh, is highly significant because Abraham is recognized as the father of the faithful and the father of all Israel. All of the children of Israel wanted to be able to claim their kinship to Abraham. And so the fact that this poor, homeless, sick, friendless fella is in Abraham's bosom while the rich, opulent guy is in hell is significant because Jesus is saying, if you think that it's about what you have in this life, you've gotten it twisted. I need to correct your error. The place of Lazarus's bliss is called Abraham's bosom. The place of the rich man is called hell, a place of torment, set apart from the righteous, but very much aware of them and their comfort. And from these two places, the rich man makes a call out to God. Have you noticed that thus far in the story, the rich man hadn't said anything? The rich man has not offered anything to Lazarus. Can you tell me that he didn't know Lazarus was sitting outside his door waiting for scraps? There's, there's a point here for us. Can we truly claim to be righteous? and see suffering folk and do nothing about it. Can we look right at suffering folk and walk by like they're not even there? Jesus tells a parable about a fellow who uh, is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and on the road he's uh, beaten and robbed and left for dead. And he says that while he's lying in the road, beaten and bleeding and dying, three folk pass by. Say one is a priest, 
The other one is a Levite, and I know how we tell it, the preacher and the deacon, but that's not, that, that's not exactly right. Jesus doesn't uh, in, indicate that one's a, a, a preacher and one's a deacon. In fact, the Levite is considered to be closer to God than the priest. Most priests, let me say that again, most Levites were priests, but not all priests were Levites. A Levite, if you go back and check your Hebrew history, Levites meant that they were from the tribe of Levi. And when God apportioned land and responsibility to the various tribes of Israel, to the tribe of Levi, he offered no land at all. But he said that they were to be a tribe, a nation, a kingdom of priests set apart for the service of God. So when he calls the Levite after the priest, he's not stepping sideways and he's not stepping down. He's actually stepping up. He's saying the priest was bad enough, but then a Levite passed by. And what's said about both of them? They stop, they look, they consider the man's condition, and they keep right on going. Are we guilty? Are we like the rich man? Are we like the priest and the Levite? Do we look at suffering? Do we look at people who are in desperate straits and in need of ministry and walk right by and offer nothing? And if we do that, can we say that we are fulfilling Christ's mandate to his church? According to Jesus, we put everybody ahead of ourselves. I've already quoted it. Love the Lord your God. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. In another place, you say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you got to put everybody before you. Okay, then what you going to do with the passage where Jesus says, he who would be greatest among you must make himself the servant of all. Put that in your pipe and smoke. It is, it is incumbent upon the church of Jesus Christ to see the need and then respond to the need. You can't convince me that this man is waiting for scraps to come off the rich man's table and the rich man doesn't know that he's there. You can't convince me that this man's best friends are dogs that come and lick up his sores and the rich man doesn't see the dogs licking the man outside his house. He saw the need. He recognized the need. But he did nothing. He says nothing about the need, and he does nothing about the need. But when he does speak, listen to what he says. Send Lazarus to come down and see about me. Here's the thing. He still thinks that he's in charge. He still thinks he's running stuff. Yeah. 
Father Abraham, would you send your servant down here to take care of me? I'm parched. I need a little water. Would you send him down here with a little water to help refresh me and, 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 and take this parched feeling away? He still thinks he's in charge. Do you know people who think that they always in charge under any and all circumstances? They're always in charge. There's some people that just have bossy spirits. They just like to give orders to folk. And that's the key. They do it because they think that they are inherently better than other people. Pharisees had a prayer that they would pray every day. Lord, thank you, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, I might not get the order right. Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile, not making me a woman, not making me a sinner. I think, I think that's the last one. But I know that the first two were Gentile, and woman. Because Pharisees just thought they were better than everybody else. And there are people today, not outside the church. I ain't talking to folk outside the church. There are folk in the church who just think that they're better than everybody else. Turn in your Bibles for just a second to James. Chapter 2. James, chapter 2. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir. This is the best seat in the house. And either ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty who exploit you? Yes, it is. Who use the courts to rob you blind? Yes, they do. Aren't they the ones who scorn the new name Christian used in your 
baptisms. You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scriptures. Love others as you love yourself. But if you play up to these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand convicted by it. You can't pick and choose in these things, specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring the others. He's describing what the Pharisees were doing. The same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but go ahead and murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. The rich man in Jesus' story had an attitude that caused him to believe that even in death, and not just in death, even in hell, He's more important than Lazarus, who is in heaven and resting in Abraham's bosom. Jesus wants us to understand that our artificial standards of righteousness and justification are just that, artificial standards that God does not recognize, nor does he have to conform to. And since he's God and we're not, it would seem to me that it would be better for us to get on his page than for him, than for us to wait on him getting on our page. Because if you wait for that, you're going to be waiting. Because it's never going to happen. The rich man's fate was a just fate. He got what he deserved. He had his good things in life. Justice would not allow Abraham to diminish his suffering. I'm always leery of people who want justice. Because I declare by all that I know, both theologically and experientially, justice doesn't get you where you're trying to go. All this talk about it ain't right. And there's a whole lot of stuff that I claim is not right. It's just not right. It's just not fair. Well, let me tell you something. If all you got was fair, if all you got was right, if all you got was just, do you know where you'd be? You'd be right next to Dives in hell. That's correct. Usually when we say it ain't right, we're talking about somebody else. We're not talking about us. 
I have not kept up with, with I, I have not followed very closely this trial and this sentencing of this white police, former police officer who killed this black man in, in, in his own apartment. But I have been reading what a lot of folk have said about it, the comments that they have made on Facebook. After she was found guilty, she was sentenced to 10 years in jail. And everybody who's black is screaming and hollering about how unfair and how unjust a 10-year sentence for murder is. And let me quickly add, I think it should be more than 10 years, too. So let me get that out of the way. But now take it away from her and take it away from the unjust sentence that she got and put you in there. Put you in there. And, and, and tell me, would your attitude be the same or would it be different? If you have to pay $2 more for something at the store than somebody else paid, y'all get mad. Where'd you get that? I bought that from X. I ain't gonna say a store because I've always got Terrence clicking off stuff. I got that from X. How much did it cost? It cost $19.95. Oh, I got one like it, but I had to pay $24.95. Well, you didn't have the coupon. The coupon gave me $5. Oh, I'm gonna take mine back and I'm gonna get a copy of the coupon and they gonna give me my $5 back. Now you gonna spend $10 worth of gas to get $5 back on something that you didn't need in the first place. Because we, we, we have this thing where we always feel like we're being cheated. Where we always feel like uh, others have an advantage over us. Well, do you know you? For just a minute, don't think about nobody else. I, I'm, I'm almost done. For just a minute, don't think about nobody else but you. In fact, if you want to, if, if it'll help, close your eyes right where you are. And don't think about nobody but you. And let me ask you a couple of questions. And, and, and since your eyes are closed, ain't nobody looking at you. Everybody raise their hand who thinks that they deserved to wake up this morning. You deserve it. Everybody raise your hand who thinks that you deserve the health in your body that allowed you to be able to come here tonight. Everybody raise your hand who thinks that you deserved the sanity, such as it is, in your mind. Okay, I've asked three questions. I ain't seen a single hand. But just think about you. Think, let, let, let me ask a different question. Everybody in here, think about 
the worst thing you did today. Don't worry about the worst thing you did ever. Just the worst thing you did today. Somebody lied today. That's probably everybody. Somebody misrepresented themselves or misrepresented the truth. Somebody did something that they knew when they did it was wrong. And nothing happened to you because of it. Do you think that that's okay? Everybody who thinks that, that, that nothing happened to you because you're just so wonderful that, that, that nothing should have happened to you. I still ain't seeing no hands. It's interesting how, just as Reverend Smith said, you can open up your eyes now, I'm almost done. It's interesting how when it's somebody else, we can talk about how unfair and how unjust and how wrong things are. But when it's us, when it's personal, God has been far better to us than any of us deserve. God has looked beyond your fault and he has met your need. And it wasn't because you're just the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's because he's God and he's patient and he's long-suffering and he's kind and he is compassionate. That's why. Yes, sir. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if... And if you would read social media, everybody calls that boy a foe. Because he did what the scripture says we should do. And some of those folk who called him a fool go to church. And some of them go to Shiloh. I got a bunch of y'all as my Facebook friends. I see all the stuff that y'all write. Put up there. You want to unfriend me if you want? Go right ahead. But I, I, I look and see what you write. See, see how, how you respond to things. And, and it's interesting how we claim something for ourselves but don't want it for anybody else. The rich man tries to be bossy, and Abraham says, bossy don't work where you are. You can't, you can't do nothing about that. And so the rich man says, okay, well, I'm in a hell of a fix, because <laughs> he's in hell. I'm in a hell of a fix, but I do have some brothers. Would you send some angels back to my daddy's house and talk to my brothers and tell them, don't do what I have done? And Abraham says, I don't need to do all of that. Said they have Moses and they have the law and they have the prophets. 
he's, he, he's making a point to the Pharisees. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, but he's actually talking beyond his disciples to the Pharisees. And the point he's making is, you know what's right. You've taken what was right and you've twisted it into something else. So I don't need to send anybody. You just need to get back on doing what's right. You want to start losing weight? Stop eating donuts. You know what's right. I ain't got to have a Pennington biomedical research study to tell me that if I want to lose weight, I need to stop eating glazed donuts. I know what's right. I don't need Dr. Kennedy to come here with a 30-page report that talks about all of the detriments that are found in donuts. I know donuts ain't good for you. Guess what? All I got to do is stop eating donuts. Abraham says, I don't need to send no angels to your brothers and, and to your daddy's house. They have Moses. They have law. They have the prophets. They have everything that they need. <laughs> and, and the rich man says, yeah, but they ain't been listening. Duh. And I don't want them to end up where I am. But if you send Lazarus back, someone who's been dead, and, and, and he comes back to life and he goes and warns him, the fact that a raised up Lazarus goes back will shock them into obedience. Who is Jesus talking about? He ain't talking about Lazarus. He's talking about himself. When he says, if they don't believe Moses or the law or the prophets, then they won't believe even someone who is raised from the dead. He's saying that when your mind is made up, it's very difficult for you to change it. It is not impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, but it is difficult. It is not impossible for evil folk to stop being evil, but it is difficult especially when it looks like evil is getting them all the stuff that they want. Got to be hard-nosed, got to be tough. Can't ask for a quarter, can't give no quarter. That's just the way it is in this life. But let me remind you, there is a life beyond this life. And this life is temporary. Friday, I turned 58. I can't tell you how fast 58 came. It came quick, fast, and in a hurry. 
sometimes I don't believe that I'm 58. But then I'm reminded very quickly, I'm every bit of 58. And it won't be too long until I have to leave this place and try the realities of another world. Here's the thing. This life is temporary. That life is forever and ever and ever. And so it just makes sense to me that I would be more interested in the things that get me where I want to be on the forever side than on the for right now side. Even if I sent back a raised up Lazarus, they wouldn't believe. Not because they can't, but because their hearts have been so hardened and fixed on the things of this world. I'm trying to tell you something and I'm done. Church folk need to watch themselves because you think you're on your way to one place. You might be looking up into heaven, asking for somebody to dip their finger, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.